0: Welcome back. I want to take a quick second to tell you about our sponsor of today's episode of North American Deer Talk, CNE Wildlife Products. CNE Wildlife is a trusted leader in biotechnology for the cervid industry. They offer microencapsulated bacteria products that are research supported through Texas Tech University with more than 30 years of experience and commitment to all natural probiotics. This product line continues to be a mainstay in herd management programs across North America. And the reason is simple. They're passionate about the cervid industry. They have products for elk, whitetail, muleys, red deer, and more. With products ranging from fawn paste and Electromax to Guardian Plus, Whitetail Energy Pack, Jumpstart, or their ever-popular top score Extreme, they just flat-out work. We've been a CNE Wildlife product user for more than 15 years. To learn more about CNE Wildlife, check out episode 54 of North American Deer Talk, a probiotics masterclass with CNE owner Sadie Horrocks. And give her a call today to start using the products we do here. Hey, it's the Deer Wizard, host of North American Deer Talk. I want to tell you about a great new advertising and research platform that we've developed for you, CWDbreeding.com. You know, as the deer industry continues to mature and develop around chronic wasting disease and its known genetic heritability, resources like CWDbreeding.com become essential tools for deer managers across the country making decisions about their herds. I really wanted a platform that excelled at hosting GEBV and codon markers in a filterable and searchable manner, but I also wanted to have high-quality pictures, videos, ages, scores, nadar numbers, and a whole host of other information to go along with that. This database puts everything in one easy-to-find location and allows you to access the industry's greatest genetic resources. I look forward to seeing all the great bucks that people have to offer in one easy-to-find location, cwdbreeding.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is episode 80. I have ARC founder, Dr. Rachel Weiss. Rach, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation.
0: You know, we've been talking about this, I think... The first time I asked you was like 2015. Oh, is that uh, right? Wow. So it's been it's been some time, but I'm so glad yeah. to have you on the show. Um, if you are uh, watching on YouTube, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Make sure you hit that like and subscribe button if you feel like the show is worthy. Uh, send it out to some folks. Uh, we're trying to get the word out on North American Deer Talk. Also, you can find us on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcast, we are there for you. Um, so, Doctor Weiss and I have known each other for twenty, I think twenty-one or twenty-two years now. Yeah, we have done a lot of work on all sorts of things, mostly deer, a uh, little bit of a uh, little bit of goat work uh, that I helped with a long, long time ago. And yep. I I thought it'd be a a great uh, opportunity to get you on and just cover a little bit of that history. You've been doing this. A long, long time. Um, You know, you're a, you're a veteran now in the, in the, uh, in the repro world. And uh, I I think the story is, is, um, is pretty compelling. So I'm glad to, glad to have you here. Awesome. Um, So give us a little background uh, about yourself, maybe, you know, some, some school and kind of your evolution into um, where you are today with uh, applied reproductive concepts.
1: Sure. Well, you know, I've been working in, uh, I guess, the repro field for a long time. But you know, what was strange was uh, before I went to vet school, I actually worked at the National Zoo uh, in Washington D.C. and I worked as a technician and um, worked there for four years. And that was really where I got involved in reproductive work. Um, You know, we start talking about some of the techniques that we use for AI. One of which is laparoscopic AI, and The first time I saw laparoscopic AI was actually in uh, cheetahs and black-footed ferrets. You know, it wasn't in a deer or a sheep or goat. So, you know, that was kind of uh, where I came from. And I'd always had a passion for going to vet school. And uh, it was through that experience, actually working at the zoo, it really opened my eyes up to alternative paths within uh, the profession of veterinary medicine. And... uh, so after working there for four years, I, I got the courage <laughs> to apply to vet school and um, uh, started vet school uh, in '97 at the Virginia Maryland Regional College of Veterinary Medicine, and um, kind of took an alternative pathway through vet school as well, knowing that really where I wanted to go was to be working in the field of wildlife and conservation medicine, and so um when I finished vet school, I actually worked in practice uh, for a period of time, kind of realizing that I really needed the experience to acquire skills to become a veterinarian and um, kind of learn a little bit about what actually happens in the field. you know I'd come from a very research-based background and so what you actually see in the field is um, when it comes to the realities of practice and the realities of what people can actually do on the farm versus what you may think in theory might be a great idea with respect to a conservation program, those two concepts or ideas don't always align. And so um, it was a great opportunity to just be out there um, doing the work and seeing the realities of what can be achieved actually out in the field. And so after working in practice for um, four years, I kind of realized that I wanted to specialize. And it seemed that at least in the large animal field, the way you actually got to get on the farm, at least with the small ruminants, um, was by doing reproductive work. And so um, I decided to specialize in reproductive work. And uh, I went on to do uh, an internship, actually in equine (laughs) reproduction for six months. And then after that time, um, I actually decided to do a residency in conservation medicine at the Wilds in Ohio and uh, was kind of thinking I would get away from the repro. But I I think that every, you know, once you start in repro, (laughs) it's hard to get away. And so a lot of the research that I was involved in in my residency, while we did a lot of really cool conservation uh, projects, um, a lot of my own research was, in uh, reproduction. So um, and then after I finished my residency, I saw this opportunity to start my own business. It was actually my mother who encouraged me to do that. I wasn't kind of realized that academia wasn't so much for me. And it was my mom who encouraged me to start my own business and focus on the small room at reproduction. So that's, that's my career.
0: Shout, <laughs> shout out, shout out, mom. Thank you
1: yeah exactly. <laughs> that's awesome.
0: I didn't I didn't know that that's great. yeah, um, yeah. tell tell folks what uh the wilds is because um until I yeah. knew I I didn't know what it was so
1: right, right. So the wilds is a really interesting place. It's now affiliated with uh, the Columbus Zoo, but the primary focus of the wilds uh, when it was started was uh, essentially a research facility to be able to manage larger groups of wildlife species endangered wildlife species um and to be able to do a little bit more research Um, it does have a visitor component now so you can actually um you know take tours through the wilds almost like a kind of a safari park type of deal Uh, but there's still a lot of research projects that take place at that location so um, it's kind of unique so we got a chance to um you know work with herds essentially you know, whether you're talking about uh, the Chevalski horse, for instance, or uh, Indian rhinos, white rhinos, um, giraffe. Um, so it's kind of a unique uh, opportunity to be able to see larger groups of animals um, being managed in a captive situation.
0: Yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, I suspect that um, that experience was a, a, a great stepping stone, if you will, into not necessarily an exotic species, but deer um, or, yeah. or those those type of of hoofstock.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So whether you're talking about handling systems that you know we use for um, working, let's just say groups of deer, sick deer, for instance, you know, um, for preventative medicine, you know, programs that we had in place for those species to a uh, mobilization of an animal in a pasture situation. Those were incredibly valuable experiences that I feel gave me the confidence to really understand kind of um, the model for farm deer. You know, it's not that different actually than, you know, that situation at the wild.
0: Yeah. That's interesting for some, for some context. Cause we, we, um, we have some, some gaps to fill in. So um, the first time that we AI deer together was, uh, and did semen collections on, on yeah. White House was in 2002, uh, okay, which is 20, I guess, twenty twenty one 21 times now we've, we've done that. And, uh, <laughs> it seems like a long time ago, of course. Um, if I can dig up the photos, I will drop a couple of those down in the, Please in notes of, of I'll some, of the, too. some <laughs> of the, yeah, some of the first, um, First yeah. thing that we were doing, um, it is not near as uh, and I will put this in air quotes professional as we, we do today. <laughs> uh, I know we didn't have a handling facility, and and right. I suspect it's much like a lot of folks when they they first start getting going, you know, they um, they can't afford a handling facility or it's not part right. of their model, um,
1: right?
0: Things were a lot different back then. We had an industry that was just kind of starting to really develop. Yeah, it was. I know, folks. Some other folks today. I long before that, but
1: yeah,
0: um, it was starting to just become a norm, right? Right, uh,
1: part right.
0: Of the program. So right, it was, it was right. a little chaotic, uh, at least on our end. Uh, you you always <laughs> did a nice job for us, but we, we didn't know how to handle deer. deer. Uh,
1: think about your first. Uh, didn't you? Didn't you make some? Sure. Um, it, it was like a. Um, something for the back of your pickup, right? Is that a wood for hauling deer, deer hauling kind of?
0: Oh yeah, we had all sorts of monstrosities <laughs> that had no place on a farm, but it worked.
1: Yeah, I, hey, uh, it worked, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's <laughs> it's actually really cool when I think about the evolution of what we've done and how we've done it. I mean, I, I even think about, you know, I think about cradle design, you know, when I think about doing laparoscopic AI, the cradles that I started with and what we use today. And it's really been just kind of a meeting of the minds of making it work, you know? And uh, so it's really kind of fun to actually see how we've become more efficient and just better at what we do, so. Well,
0: it it kind of highlights your point uh, earlier how um, what happens on the farm is very different than what happens in a a lab or a book, right?
1: Oh, Uh, yeah, absolutely.
0: That experience. it, it it's so valuable for the maturation of not only us as as people and and managers of these animals but more specifically in the repro world um those techniques and and experiences are learned over over time and they they just make you better at your craft you know
1: absolutely i agree with you 100% it's hard to convey that that time frame to to someone who's just jumping in do you know what i mean they kind of get to see the slice you know of you know 20 years of just making it better
0: yeah so. i i uh when i start talking about that i feel older um immediate <laughs> immediately because i always always like the young guy on stuff and
1: yeah yeah anyway it was just
0: yeah i'm i'm i, I know, get it no, very gonna, i get it experience. <laughs> um so you you do um you do the residency at the wilds that kind of lays the groundwork and you say look I this I think this repo things for me I've been kind of doing some gear work uh, on the side I'm ready to kick this thing in full gear when when is that
1: um I'm sorry kick the gear what oh, kick
0: okay. kick it in full gear full um, gear oh full ARC. gear <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry
1: yeah 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 so. It was really 2009 you know where the business was established as applied reproductive concepts and um it was at that time that you know i pretty much was exclusively doing deer and then i was doing a little contract work for some colleagues who were doing uh sheep and goat work so um to be honest with you i i have to really go back and look at you know, there was just an explosion, um, in the small ruminant side, you know, I, I didn't really even realize what the potential was, you know, um, so regionally, you know, most of my deer work has historically resided within the state of Pennsylvania. And, um, now, you know, we, we travel to New York and we do a little work in West Virginia. And we also do some work in Texas. Most of, uh, my small ruminant work, sheep and goat is, uh, it's in Pennsylvania here at my clinic. Can't exactly bring deer to my clinic. Um, but we do a lot of work in Ohio and uh we do work a lot of work in Virginia and New York. So
0: yeah, that's interesting. Um what what is the uh I've I've only ever uh, participated in the the AI process laparoscopically with goats uh one time. And I think yeah. it
1: was sheep, man, wasn't it? It was sheep, the was sheep it? yeah, it was sheep, yeah. Oh. It was at uh was it a sheep
0: dairy in New there Jersey? You go. New Jersey yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, I, um, I, I found it really interesting. Cause like literally you were like, Hey, just grab that sheep and throw it on the, yeah. throw it in yeah. the wrap," And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, cool. Like, and it was, of course it was fun. And, um, we, we got that done. How does that, do you find there's a relationship between the species, um, as far as techniques go, and not necessarily handling, but the actual AI process, and like how does that develop? Yeah, your, yeah, your, it, your workflow.
1: It's actually very similar, and you know, I would say that you know, my background with wildlife management, let's just say uh, that experience has really. I think given me the opportunity to see the sheep and goat model a little differently. A lot of people, you know, when they're working livestock, it's kind of interesting when, I think we first started going to Texas and we were working on this one particular ranch and it just seemed to me like they were trying to handle deer like you would handle cattle, but it's different. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Um, I feel that actually working with deer and other exotic hoof stock has really taught me a lot and kind of given me a different approach to working with sheep and goats, you know? Um, like one thing I like goats are very sensitive animals okay a little bit more like deer maybe not that sheep are not sensitive but like so for instance when we do uh, sedation techniques for the goats I use masks and you know I feel like um that really helps uh, minimize the amount of drug that we need to use and actually increases the depth of anesthesia by minimizing that visual stimulation in the goat. And so it's really been, you know, working with deer that kind of started making me think a little bit more about, well, how can we be doing the sheep and goat better to kind of reduce stress? You know, so much of what we deal with in deer revolves around how can we, minimize stress, you know? I mean, that's an animal that's so susceptible to stress. But that being said, the sheep and goats are equally susceptible. They they kind of um, express it a little bit differently, but the impacts are very much the same, you know? So, so for instance, you know, you go to do an AI program and on a deer farm and, you know, the farmer's stressed out, the deer are stressed out, you know, the whole deal just doesn't go that great you know, they're being darted, so on and so forth. Those programs don't always turn out that well, okay? Um, and the same is true when you're working around, let's just say more domesticated livestock, like sheep and goats, you know, when people are stressed out and they're they're handling their animals in a way that you can just tell <laughs> the whole situation is tense, the animals are not happy, you can just see that, it makes a huge difference.
0: Interesting. Um, yeah. So the... Um you're doing you're doing laparoscopic ai on uh, sheep and goats
1: mhm correct
0: um, obviously we do those uh, in deer it's the same same, correct. People, yeah. same general process
1: yeah the whole process is is really quite similar as far as just the the surgical approach the laparoscopic approach um the reproductive systems i mean they all kind of have their own little uh differences just subtle nuances and just little changes in anatomy but for the most part the um the anatomy is is pretty much the same among all of those small ruminant species uh the estrous cycles are different so hmm. the programming is going to be a little different um there's a lot more research that's gone into uh the reproductive programs for sheep and goats and so your options for uh, synchronizing estrus are a little bit different in the sheep and goat. I think we could potentially implement some of those other types of protocols with deer, but we kind of haven't stepped out there. There hasn't been the opportunity to do the research. And so, you know, we've kind of stuck to kind of some uh, tried and true protocols that seem to be pretty predictable. So if it's working, why would you change it? You know what I mean? Likewise, in the sheep and goat world, there's some tried and true protocols that work yeah there's some new research out there um but a lot of people just like to stick with the old protocols that have been working for years
0: so for those that are maybe uh new and we're going to we'll stick in the deer lane um for those yeah. that are maybe new to to ai or, or or reviewing their their programs internally um or just kind of getting their feet wet with it sure. give us a general rundown of what um you know the the basic approaches for lap ai with you know, whether you use cedars or, or, uh, hormones and timing and stuff like that. What's your general approach to that?
1: Okay. So like the super basic approach without kind of talking about, you know, seasonal influences, the time of year, so on and so forth. Um, let's just assume that we're, we're, we're staging our protocols, um, at a time of year when we know that the deer are receptive to, to AI, but basically, um, The protocol for deer involves placing a cedar, which is a source of progesterone intravaginally for anywhere from 15 to 16 days, okay? And so what you're doing in that point is you're kind of priming the brain with progesterone, okay? A lot of these early programs, I always kind of question whether or not these does are actually cycling. And so for some on the early side, you know, like we've done these programs at the end of October, this could very well be the first cycle that this doe is experiencing, um, and so the longer progesterone treatment is helpful in that respect. And so, the the progesterone stays in place for fifteen to sixteen days. We pull the cedars, and then we give them a dose of uh, PMSG, which is pregnant mare serum gonadotropin, which acts like FSH. Okay. So when we pull the progesterone, what we're doing at that point is hopefully recruiting a synchronous follicular wave, okay, that will ultimately lead to ovulation. And I would say that ovulation in deer is probably taking place somewhere from 58 to 64 hours post Cedar Pool. It's, and it could even be later, because the reality is, is that when we're looking at these deer, at that time, a lot of times we're breeding at 58 and 60 hours, we're actually seeing follicles we haven't seen what are called fresh ovulations so those ovulations that ovulatory process is probably taking place a little bit later um, so and then so the insemination procedure is a laparoscopic procedure uh, it's minimally invasive okay and so what we're doing is we're making two small holes in the abdomen essentially we're placing um, a laparoscope which actually allows us to visualize the reproductive tract. And then we're putting what's called an accessory cannula so that we can actually deposit the semen uh, through a small needle uh, directly in the uterus. So um, we're placing, you know, anywhere, something about 8 million total motile sperm per insemination in deer.
0: What's the advantage of doing a laparoscopic process over um, a vaginal or or Right.
1: So you're placing the semen directly in the uterus. One of the challenges of um, AIing trans uh, transcervically, you know, vaginally, is that, you know, you're placing um, the semen, in some situations, you can actually pass the uh, the pipette through the cervix. But in my experience, as far as working with deer in the chute, um, that's not always easily achievable based on just the restraint. Um, so... The advantage of laparoscopy is two things, mainly. One is that you're depositing the semen directly in the uterus. And then two is, because you're doing that, you can actually breed with smaller numbers of total modal sperm. So your ability to split straws, let's just say, four ways is going to be, um, you're know, you going to have a greater advantage when you're breeding laparoscopically because you're putting that small number of sperm directly in the uterus. Whereas if you were to go vaginally or transcervically, you know, maybe you're getting through the cervix fifty percent of the time, um, and that that dough gets a higher dose of total modal sperm as a as a full straw. but um, a lot of times you're not. So that semen, you know that those sperm cells have to swim a further distance okay. you know to basically get to the uterine tube for fertilization
0: um, when you when you look at uh, so let me let me start by saying, as far as I can tell, there is no standard for um, packing semen straws within the <laughs> within right. the industry on white-tailed deer. Uh, not that right. I was, anyway. Um, yeah. Give, give us your thoughts on, you know if you're if you're doing lap AI, you had mentioned the eight million um, you know modal sperm count. Um, just give us some general thoughts around um, semen packing and then the the use of how many how many semen do you think it takes? I know it only takes one, but how many you'd prefer to put, um, in when you're doing this process of, of, sure. uh, laparoscopic AI?
1: Sure. Um, it kind of, I guess it kind of depends. As I mentioned, I think we get along fairly well, you know, when we're, um, inseminating with roughly 8 million total modal sperm. Okay. But you know, how much you actually use is, uh, sometimes it's going to be a function of kind of what the client wants to do. Do you know what I mean? And so with the straws that you get, you're in the field. You don't have a lot of time to quantitate those numbers. Do you know what I mean? There is some standard within the industry now. It wasn't so much in the beginning um, as we kind of work with processors that quantitate, you know, have the uh, facilities to quantitate, you know, semen counts prior to freezing. Um, there's a lot more consistency in, in what we actually see in the field, and so, you know, you. I usually try to ask customers, you know, where is the semen coming from, and it, you know, based on where it's coming from, I have a general idea of how concentrated that straw is going to be. I look at the percent motility on the post-thaw. Uh, I factor that into, you know, how how many times can we divide a straw. But in general, I would say that uh, deer semen straws are packed with roughly. Um, you know, 60 million sperm. So when you go to thaw that straw, you're going to have anywhere from 30 to 40 million motile sperm, you know, and so you got to ask yourself, you know, um, how can we use it? And so the other part of the evaluation is it's not just percent motility, but it's also perhaps just the quality of the motility and the velocity. And that will also influence, let's say, my personal decision with respect to how good that semen is and where my comfort level is, to get good conception rates um based on that analysis
0: gotcha um when you <clears throat> so obviously you're doing a, a a semen evaluation prior to insemination with these straws mm-hmm. uh, when you're making the determination of what you feel is is best to achieve uh, you know uh, some sort of uh pregnancy or 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 conception um uh, mm-hmm. i guess n- knowing that have you I'm sure you've run into stuff where I I know we have on our farm, like look at some, (laughs) look at some semen and you're just like, this is just not great. And like all all the, the, all the dough stick.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
0: Any, any thoughts on like (laughs) why, why that happens? Or, you, you know, do you think sometimes like. Uh, the stuff needs to wake up a little bit or you're just yeah So, so
1: in general like when i'm evaluating a straw on the farm i really try to give that sample the benefit of the doubt and you know if there's any question you know um sometimes it's a matter of allowing the semen to warm up a little bit longer sometimes adding uh we add a little extender to the semen just when we're dividing um up straws that way we're inseminating with an equal volume as well as an equal number of total modal sperm, but I think there's something to be said uh, for just the fertility of deer. Do you know what I mean? I feel like there's some days, like, I feel like you could just kind of waft the sperm in their general direction and and they're going to conceive. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Whereas like, when you think about other domesticated livestock, you know, we haven't really messed around with deer as much as we have with other domesticated livestock where we haven't lost a lot of, where we've lost a lot of fertility in some of the domesticated species. Whereas the deer, I don't think we've messed around with them in that way, as far as their phenotypes, you know, for different Mm -hmm. purposes where we've lost that fertility. And you see that uh, in some of the domesticated livestock too, there are definitely breeds of sheep for example, that are highly fertile, you know, they're bred for those traits, whereas some other sheep that are bred more for show and phenotype, you know, maybe they've lost a little bit of that. So hmm. I, f- I feel like there's probably some kind of factor that goes into play that way with respect to just how uh, fertile a buck is. And, you know, the other interesting thing too, I think is we look at sex semen, you know, some bucks really sort well and some you know which ends up resulting in some really good quality sex straws that work well do you know what i mean but then there's some that don't so what is the difference there i don't know i don't think that anybody knows
0: yeah that's that's interesting um it, it's so it's kind of so cool when you look at you know of course like my favorite thing is genetics so mm-hmm. a, aka pedigrees right so i'm looking at these pedigrees and i'm like you know what line does what, and so on and so forth. And I I, I did notice like I have one particular line of does um, that has multi generational um, kind of offspring from this one particular female. They 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 do not do well in a reproductive program, and I right. just don't, I just don't mess with them. They live breed right. just fine. They have twins all the time. They they do not respond well to artificial work at all mm-hmm. um I think that and that just took me time right like I I this one girl I I put this was so this would have been um from 2011 to 2000 yeah 2011 2015 um I was putting what I considered some of the best straws in her, Max Bow, P.A. all these expensive straws every year, nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. I ai her four times in a row. Yeah. I got smart and I, I never ai her again. Yeah. But she stayed here for 12 years and she, like by any, by any account, um, she has uh, generally speaking thrown the largest bucks year over year, over year, mm. um, antler wise, body wise, just, she's just been, an incredible producer, but mm-hmm. I could not get her to AI. AI. So, AI. <laughs> which which was a challenge for me because, like, I considered her one of my quote unquote best O's, right. but I could only use um, genetic material from here on the farm. And right. a lot of that was related to her, which I didn't really want to do because she was already kind of line bred up. And, and yeah, but interesting. It, it, it's been interesting to see some of her daughters do the exact same thing. Yeah. And I, I kind of, I, I only give them two years, right? I, I, yeah. they don't work. Okay. She's a yearling, right? Second year they don't take, I, I just, I just don't, I don't breed them again. Um, yeah. if, anyway,
1: I think that's, I think that's, uh, there's a lot to be said for that. And it's, um, you not only see that in deer, but you see that in other, uh, domesticated species, whether it's the synchronization protocol that we're using or it's the stress of the, just the reproductive management. The reality is you got to put a cedar in her, you got to handle her at least, three times before you actually, you know, get to try to inseminate her. And and maybe there's an underlying stress factor that doesn't really permit her to to conceive, you know? So. Um,
0: Before we get off of AI and get into embryos, I want to just chat a little bit more about semen and semen collections. Uh, We had a really interesting case here uh, on the farm with a buck that most of the listeners know called Roman. And um, you had made some recommendations to me on, on getting a good collection and, and, just for reference we were we were persistent in our pursuit of getting a quality collection from this buck due to uh what i considered all the great attributes that i wanted apparently giving semen to us was not one of those um but we went over 4 and right. <laughs> uh which is uh, frankly it's it, it's i don't think it was our fault i think it was more the deer uh which we slowly figured out over time uh, mm-hmm. but you made some recommendations to me on that um and, and I don't know I don't know why exactly. So I'd like you to to explain that general protocol uh, that we did. And I'll, I can fill in some of the more funny gaps to make the this, this story uh, flow, <laughs> but just give us the general premise of what you would do yeah. in a situation with a buck.
1: Sure. So in that case, if I remember correctly, um, Rome was kind of laid back buck, wasn't he? Was he kind of That's, laid back? Okay. So that was a little bit part of the challenge. Number two was... You know, it's not unusual that we are able to collect bucks in the Northeast. Let's just say in mid-October, but sometimes that can be a challenge. And some bucks that don't collect well in um, and, and it's not unusual. You're looking at the start of the reproductive season, essentially, for this particular animal. So it's not unusual that when sometimes you do those early collections, you don't get very clean collections, and you get collections that would suggest that you know the animal's just kind of coming into their reproductive cyclicity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, And so with Roman, uh, and then the other uh, challenge that we're faced with, too, is that when we collect these animals, we collect them by electroejaculation, okay? And, you know, just because you can't get a semen sample from an animal via electroejaculation doesn't necessarily mean that the animal's not fertile. It just means that you just didn't get that sample on that day. So sometimes anesthesia plays a role with respect to the depth of anesthesia and how comfortable you might be as far as stimulating that animal to get an ejaculate. So in our, I guess it was our last attempt, um, we uh, we actually decided we're gonna um, <laughs> take a little bit more of a an aggressive approach and see if we couldn't kind of get Roman stimulated a little bit earlier. And so what we did was we treated him with PMSG. It's the same drug that we use to synchronize um the uh, estro cycle for ai um mainly with the idea that we wanted to use the pmsg uh which acts a little bit like fsh and lh to kind of stimulate the testosterone production um and just kind of get his libido up uh and then i think we also staged some cleanouts for him right yeah. uh, so we staged a couple of those to put him with so that he could kind of clean himself out and really optimize the quality of the semen that we were gonna to attempt to collect on that day. So we basically, you did you, you darted him, right? With the PMSG, is that once, how you did it?
0: Once a week for six weeks.
1: Yeah, right. So we did that. And uh, fortunately, <laughs> I guess, you know, that maybe, I don't know if that was the secret to the success, but I think it was a combination. We also tried uh, a different anesthesia. We we Xylazine and telazole, you know, to really kind of get that depth of anesthesia. And then um, the other recommendation I had from a colleague of mine was to utilize um, a different stimulation uh, pattern with the electroejaculator, which I think ultimately ended up being a good, uh, you know, a good approach. I, hard to say what what the exact yeah. thing was. Maybe it was just luck that year. <laughs> so I'll take it. we took like a, a five thousand pronged approach to to get semen from this animal. We did. So That was great. Yeah.
0: No, it was. I, I was when you first told me to dart him with PMSG, I was like, you're crazy. I don't know why you're telling me (laughs) this, but I'm going to listen to you because you know way more than I do. And so I did that. Um, I had, uh, I had synced up a couple of does and we had, we had let him, we had let him clean out. um, It was like five to seven days prior to collection, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I had, I had a couple more girls that I had synced up and I, I uh, contacted my buddy who I, I think has some of the best, um, estrus dough uh, products mm, right. and I had hung up, <clears throat> I have, I have this small holding pen next to the barn and I had hung up a wick in the tree and soaked it with estrus. And I ran the dough in the barn and she was probably, she was probably cycling too, but I, I dumped a whole pile on her, on her butt. And we ran her out and, and I put, I put her right next to the fence, right next to him. And, um, he, he couldn't get to her, but like he was, you could just tell he was like, go over to the wick and smell it. And so we let that roll for about two hours. And I, I, um, I gave him a, uh, remote delivery device and we got him in the barn. And after a, uh, thorough, uh, clean out, which I, I won't go into detail on, cause it was, uh, kind of crazy. <laughs> After a, sure. uh, yeah, after a <laughs> thorough clean out, um, yeah. we, we, we worked him over and, uh, we got a, a pretty nice collection on him, And that, that's the only collection that we ever, uh, we ever ended yeah. up on him anymore. And, um, it was, uh, it was great to finally get some semen. Cause I remember taking his antlers to the Nadifa conference in 2019 and people were like, Hey, Hey, Hey. And I'm like, I'm trying, I'm trying to get some semen <laughs> on him. Anyway, he's He uh that whole experience was was really neat and uh, yeah you know i kind of forgot about
1: the estrus urine that you used or the you know the product that just to get them really supercharged right before collection
0: we were trying that, that helps
1: yeah i can tell you you know just as that's a great example uh it's just called teasing you know and when we're collecting sheep and goats you know we generally can collect them with an av an artificial vagina you know what i mean but uh the teasing really helps uh, with the the quality and the volume that you get. So,
0: yeah. So don't if you're if you're out there and you're not getting collections on a buck, don't don't lose hope. <laughs> there there are ways you can try all sorts of different things. Yeah. So I want to transition. I think that's a, a great place to get into uh, embryo transfer. And uh, I've shared and
1: Roman's mom. <laughs> and Roman's mom.
0: That's right. And right? I've shared, I've shared uh, some of the story um, with them. So let's, let's lay a little, um, a little bit of, of context for embryo transfer work and, and kind mm-hmm. of, uh, the potential, um, benefits of that, uh, specifically in, in deer and maybe some of your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. So embryo transfer is just a whole nother, uh, layer to the reproductive, uh, opportunities that you have for management and it's not it's not for everyone it's there's a huge commitment and typically if you're going to go down the path of doing embryo transfer i highly recommend that you become successful at just your ai program because there are a lot of similarities to what you do um between the ai and the embryo transfer but there's a lot more that goes into the embryo transfer so the idea of the embryo transfer is really uh to reduce, uh, the general, the, the generation interval of a particular donor female. Um, in general, a donor or just a, a doe in general will produce, let's just say two or three offspring, you know, per year, per breeding season. But by doing embryo transfer, you potentially have the opportunity to increase that number um, four or five fold, you know. I'd say the average embryo production in deer is probably somewhere, you know, around six or eight transferable embryos realistically. Um, some produce a lot more, some produce a lot less. So um, it's a great opportunity to uh, increase the genetic representation from a donor within a year on your farm, especially if you know she has the right genetics that you're looking for. The other uh, interesting opportunity is the ability to move germ pl- plasm across state lines as opposed to the live animal. So that's um, a unique opportunity uh, in the deer world, um, especially with respect to our the loss of the ability to move live deer across state lines. You can move uh, an embryo.
0: So I want to hop away from the deer work for one second. Talk sure. about uh, your work in sheep and goats because I, I I know you have done epic amounts of of sheep <laughs> and goat work, uh, embryo wise. Right. Um, I I don't even know if it's quantifiable how many there are, but um,
1: I couldn't quantify it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: there's you have a a ton of established work in those those two particular species. Sure. Um, They uh, my understanding is that uh, goats can be incredibly fertile donors Sure. Give us a rundown of kind of just that general, not so much the program, but like maybe why you think they are and like some of the things that you can expect from uh, goats and then maybe sheep and then we'll hop back into the deer.
1: Right. So the the traditional protocols that are utilized in sheep and goat, uh, typically, you know, they require multiple injections of FSH um, in order to... uh, stimulate them in a way that they produce multiple ovulations um, and hopefully result in fertilization. So you get far more uh, embryos, transferable embryos, in the sheep and goat than sometimes you get in the deer. Um, Yeah, the average uh, goat embryo production is somewhere around 10 to 12 transferables, whereas with the sheep, it's probably more like eight. And I think those are just species differences. Um, There are some sheep, again, that are We don't necessarily always get the opportunity to to work with them commercially, um, but the show show sheep tends to produce on average about eight transferable embryos. as far as preparing that animal, as I mentioned, it requires injecting FSH multiple times over the course of the stimulation period, um, and so there's a lot of management. You know, you're injecting potentially that animal uh, twice a day for four days uh, prior to AI. Okay, um, a lot of times in the sheep and goats, we use um, fresh semen or chilled semen. Uh, as opposed to frozen, and the fertilization rates tend to be really good in that respect. Uh, So those are some of the basic differences with the sheep goat versus the deer. Okay, And the deer, uh, you can actually employ a very similar stimulation protocol, but I think what we've learned and we understand about deer is that it's not terribly easy and it's very stressful to consider (laughs) injecting those animals twice a day for four days. Now, some people have had some pretty decent success, you know, with um, animals that are kind of used to that particular um, management style. Uh, But we've kind of gone to backing off the um, the administration of FSH multiple times. And we've been using a recombinant FSH product uh, that we give once at the start of the stimulation. And we've been getting some pretty decent results, but not very consistent results with that product. I think there's still a lot to be learned. Um, what we do on a deer farm is really gonna be a little bit about what kind of management facilities we have available and what's worked in the past, you know? So like last year on your farm, we used the quote, unquote, one shot. And I think we got along fairly well with it. Um, you know, does that mean we should try something different? You know maybe uh you know if the one shot was not available to us we'd have to try something different um when we uh when we started doing the deer work we were basically kind of retrofitting some of the protocols that we were using for goats to the deer okay so uh We've actually gone to some of our protocols where we only do one shot a day for four days, um, where we reconstitute the FSH um, in hyaluronic acid, which essentially uh, will slow the release of the FSH in the animal. Um, so we've done that as well um, on deer farms with good success. I mean, if, if, the, if the one shot and the recombinant FSH could be a bit more consistent, I think that might be something to consider. Um,
0: so, the yeah, the first the first uh program we did here uh was more for for fun to see if we could, yeah, we yeah sure. that was 2015. And i um, yep. I believe it was the the once a day for four days, um, okay, yeah, something mm-hmm. along those lines, right? Yeah, every other day for a week, or I don't I don't exactly yeah, it was
1: once a day, it was once a day okay. for four days, yeah, it was yeah, once it, a day for yeah. four days, yeah. And um, uh, we had done uh,
0: we had done two other dose um. The I was kind of partnered on for another guy, and Roman's mom was, mm-hmm. was in that mix. Of course, um, she wasn't Roman's mom then because he, he, um, I think he was just born the year before, so he would have been a yearling, and he was nothing yearling, so I didn't even know she wasn't on right. there <laughs> anyway. She was just, she handled, I remember, I remember putting her in the shoot for those, she was born in uh 2010. I remember putting her in the shoot, she go on the shoot, she just real chill i remember yep. other does going to the shoot and they're just like shaking they're mm-hmm. in the shoot they're not bucking or carrying on but they're shaking and mm-hmm. that was just like come on just let me out of here <laughs> and i was like okay the sheep probably be a good one right so we did that and we got um i think we got five grade a's out of her that year um mm-hmm. which was pretty cool um yeah we ended we up
1: froze one didn't we freeze those
0: we froze two yeah we tried putting some in some donors and uh two donors that year yeah one she or steps, two of yep Yeah. Restart Mm -hmm. receipts. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, they didn't, they didn't stick. Uh, and then we had some other ones. I want to say we had a couple more. We ended up putting, I know we got one, we got one buck out of the, uh, the mix who is standing. He'll be a two-year-old this year. Okay. Uh, Cause we put it
1: in like two years ago, right? Yeah. The frozen one. Yes. Okay. Um,
0: that, you know, that animal was born, I have to look, cause I have a picture of me holding that buck fawn in the pen and I got a rain suit on and <laughs> it's pouring, but it was like two weeks early.
1: Oh wow. But like that,
0: that fawn was fine. Like there was, I hmm. just, it was like 36 degrees and raining or whatever it was. And I was like, no, the, like you're alive and I know where you came from. Like you're, you're coming in. So I brought him in the barn <laughs> for a couple hours just to like, not, so he wasn't in the pouring rain, but, um, yeah that dude's still alive and that was really cool that was a cool
1: cool yeah it's kind of fun like that like you you look at these embryos in the microscope you know in a petri dish and then there's the live animal that's that's always that's one cool thing to me i think
0: like a little black fascinating yeah (laughs) uh, you're like wow so the fact that we could take that and put it somewhere else was just really incredible um so that that um that, um, I, I think, you know, what was that eight, eight years ago I guess now. Right. So, um, there's been some kind of small nuance changes and of course mm-hmm. things you've learned as you've done more deer. Sure. Um, and we kind of, we implemented those this year. Um, I think we had nine, nine does that we did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you want to walk through that, uh, just general synchronization and, uh, sure.
1: So we'll the, the the synchronization is not that different. Let's just say than AI. We talked about putting uh, a cedar in place, progesterone for you know roughly fourteen to fifteen days, and then uh, one week, you know, essentially prior to the cedar removal. Okay, we're going to stimulate the donor under the influence of progesterone. Okay, we gave the one shot, you know, uh, which was the recombinant form of FSH. And um, we, in the same way that we kind of schedule an AI, it's for fixed time insemination. So we're, we're breeding again at a very similar time based on cedar pool. So you pulled the cedar, we bred the, the donor. Um, they actually used half straws of semen, right, per donor. Uh, and we bred them at roughly 58 hours post cedar pool. Um, And then after we come back a week later, seven days post insemination, and we do a a surgical procedure where we um, exteriorize the reproductive tract. Um, But before we do that, we actually laparoscopically evaluate the animal. At that stage of the game, we're looking for structures on the ovary. They're called CLs or corpora lutea. Those are the structures on the ovary that are producing progesterone. Okay. Mm. So we laparoscopically evaluate the animal. I think when we we evaluated your donors, I think there were probably two donors we chose not to flush because uh, they um, they either regressed or they just didn't have uh, functional CLs. Um, So we didn't flush them. So we laparoscopically evaluate them, but if they look good, we go ahead and we flush them. Uh, and again, that's a surgical procedure. You exteriorize the reproductive tract, um, and then you actually flush uh, a special kind of saline solution through each uterine horn, and so we collect uh, the embryos, hopefully, <laughs> um, you know, into a conical tube, and then we evaluate the contents of that conical tube using a stereo microscope, um, and we look for embryos. So then after we're finished flushing, you know, we, um, put the uterus back in the abdomen of a deer and we sew up her body wall and, you know, hope that, you know, we take her to recovery and she does well. She gets some antibiotics, some anti-inflammatories for pain.
0: Yeah. It, um, do you
1: know if you, did you breed your donors back?
0: I did. So, um, all of the so uh, take Roman's mom out of the mix, and, yep. and for those that haven't, I'm I'm going to uh, I'm gonna try to uh, put the show where I talk about this right here in the video if I can remember what I'm doing right now. Okay, uh, when okay. I go back and and edit a little bit, um, but we 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 took Roman's mom out of that equation because we have we have other things for her to do. Right, uh, and I'll talk about that in a second. But all the other does um, we let. Uh, we let carry yep. if they were carrying, like if we are right. something, right. And they all went in with a backup buck and buck. and I saw, I'd have to look at my notes. Um, I saw a few of them getting, uh, chased uh, pretty, mm-hmm. good. I saw a couple of them being bred and then others, no activity. Um, uh, mm-hmm. so I'm just, uh, and I haven't seen my deer for, um, a few days, uh, cause I've been yeah. in, I've been in DC, but, um, I noticed a couple of them starting to get a bag. So, okay. um, it is a little, one, one of them got bred like three days. One of the ones we chose not to flush got bred almost right after I put her back in the pen. It was just okay. a couple of days. I'd have to look at the date exactly Yeah, like three, three or five days sticks out. In
1: yeah.
0: Um, and she's starting to bag up. So she's going to have fawns, uh, pretty soon. Yeah. There's another one that looks like she's getting bigger. Um, that could potentially be uh, carrying from the
1: retained embryo. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, hopefully there's not like five in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, although we did have a set of of quintuplets last year, they all lived. Mom raised them all by herself, and oh. so it is possible. Wow. Um, yeah, crazy. I so when we wean those, I wean those five fawns. Mm -hmm. um i think it was like end of october november there was 300 pounds of fawn that that doe had at weaning oh my gosh pounders about
1: that's amazing that's amazing yeah that is nuts Um, but you bring up you bring up a good point you know that was one thing that i did not mention during the process of uh flushing is you know usually um you know, we give a drug. Uh, it's a prostaglandin to kind of terminate a pregnancy. Should not all of the embryos get flushed out? And that's always a possibility. Um, when you think about the uh, um, the embryos, they're very sticky at that stage. They can be a little sticky. And then two is just the anatomy of the um, of the reproductive tract. You know, even though you're flushing solution and you're kind of massaging the fluid through the urine horns. During that process, there's always that chance that there's an embryo that might get retained, or, you know, we kind of go with the assumption that all of the embryos have entered the uterus at the mm-hmm. time of flush. It's a uterine flush. It's possible that if there was a maybe a slower to mature embryo that didn't quite make it down to the um, the uterus, you know, you would miss it. It'd be in the uterine tube. I mean, there's some folks back in the day that actually used to do tubal flushes um which is a lot more um there's a lot more manipulation with the reproductive tract at that stage and so one of the things that you really want to try to minimize from these things that we do with these animals is the formation of adhesions that can develop from a surgery Um, so we try to minimize that by good tissue handling techniques but also um, by encouraging producers to make sure that these does and donors they carry um, you know, fawns post surgery because that helps as far as kind of stretching out the reproductive tract and minimizing the risk of adhesion formation so
0: um so we ended up um Roman's mom has been very arthritic and mm-hmm. and um you know, she's thirteen years this year. I actually had no plans on adding her into the to the embryo <laughs> program to flush this year.
1: she was our best performer she Wasn't was.
0: She- she was indeed. So we, <laughs> we sync her up. She just, you know, she looks, she looks old. Um, yeah. and uh, I, I just took a picture of her the other day and she's got these big naughty, uh, arthritic knees. I will put a picture of, of her in the, in the show notes. so You guys can see her. Um, and I, I was just gonna, I was gonna call her, um, cause I, I kind of feel partially bad for her, but I've been working with her nutritional program and trying to make her better. Long story short, uh, she shocked us all. She shocked me anyway, gave us 10 great A's, um, which totally blew my mind. Uh, I thanked her greatly for that. Uh, Greg Leonard's who who got all those embryos. Um, he thanks her for that. And I took the chance on um keeping her another year. So we decided to um try to terminate whatever pregnancy. And I I did not put her back in with a buck because I just I didn't want her to get run around and I didn't know what winter was going to be like here. So I think if we would have been in the upper Midwest with the amount of cold and snow uh, that they got this year, she would have not made the winter. We had a very mild winter. Um, I think we were less than 20 inches of snow total all winter. Um, we, I mean, it's been the weather. I'm looking over to my window. The weather's been really nice. Uh, we kind of have this early spring happening and she pulled through, right? She looks she looks okay. So um we're gonna we're gonna try her again this <laughs> we're gonna try her again this fall. Um see how she does. But um she was the only one that that didn't go through that that backup process. Um I just I didn't think she was gonna that was,
1: that was the right decision for her, yeah, you know. Yeah, do I mean, well come got- on again.
0: So um it's so interesting. I um I I I think about kind of where we where we started with all this and and um, you know where we're at. What do you think the future looks like for uh, reproduction and in, in in deer?
1: I think that uh, I don't know that things are going to change tremendously. I mean, I feel like um, you know it's really interesting to me that you know they've had great success in sorting you know semen for deer uh and we get pretty decent results with conception rates on using sex semen but uh you know in the other livestock at least the sheep and the goat they they can't it just has not gotten to that stage where it's commercially applicable do you know what i mean the same way that deer is uh that it works with deer um so That's a a great tool for this business, you know, especially when you think about, you know, what the end, ideally, you know, it seems to me that, you know, if we could just make more bucks, that's ultimately some of the end product on just the industry itself, but as far as just having a breeding operation, I think that especially with some of the genomics that they've been doing on CWD. Uh, You can identify your really valuable donors that have the right genomics. You choose the sire that has the right genomics and you really start making an animal in theory that could be less susceptible to CWD. You have a lot more control over that. So I think in that respect, um, that could be another potentially useful tool. You know, I think that, the embryo transfer work will continue to evolve I don't know that we've kind of haven't figured out hundred percent but I think we're getting better I think uh, there's still a lot of more re- lot more research that's going into the recombinant product in particular um, that I think uh, shows some promise for embryo management programs um, but I guess yeah that that's I think there's um, I feel like at least in conversations that I've had with you and you're you know a bit more in touch with um, some of the farmers, you know, are really kind of struggling with the CWD management side. But with some of the new research that's come out, I feel like what you've been communicating to me is there's a lot more optimism, you know, to, uh, you know, maybe doing uh, breeding programs and, and just being involved in the deer industry.
0: Yeah, I, I won't expand too much on that. But you're you're 100% correct. And and the um, you're your intuition is, is spot on with, uh, identifying, you know, really powerful, uh, females and, and males from a genomic standpoint and being able to, uh, specifically target those crosses through embryos, I I think is going to be a, a very powerful tool for, for all of us in a way to reshape the whitetail herd, um, not only in Pennsylvania, but, but across the country. So yeah, that's, that's, I, I don't see it another way. Um, But yeah, I think I think that's um, I think that's a very valuable. So Um, I'm I'm cognizant of our our time here because we've uh, we've we've rattled on for a a good bit. We usually do. Yeah, well, we didn't get too far off track, um, which is, uh, I guess, kudos to both of us because we we usually explore all sorts of different topics. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. I, I know I've pestered you with with doing this for uh quite some time and, and I really appreciate it. I, I wanted Absolutely. to share some of those those stories with folks and and you just have a really interesting story. And you know, I appreciate our 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 friendship and, and professional relationship with each other. So I appreciate you doing this.
1: Excellent. It's it's been fun and I appreciate the opportunity. So thanks.
0: Absolutely. Um I will link up um uh, some of contact info. If you have questions for her on repo work, you want to try to get a program set up, that kind of stuff, um, you can do that. And uh, with that, we'll wrap up and stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.